Chapter Twenty Seven C of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty Seven C. More trouble with Chase. Lincoln's final disposal of him. The President's fourth annual message. His position toward the rebellion and slavery reaffirmed. Colored folks' reception at the White House. Passage of the Amendment Prohibiting Slavery, Lincoln and the Southern Peace Commissioners, The Meeting in Hampton Roads, Lincoln's Impression of A. H. Stevens, The Second Inauguration, Second Inaugural Address, With Malice Toward None and With Charity for All, An Auspicious Omen. After the Baltimore Convention, Mr. Chase proposed to resign his position as Secretary of the Treasury, but he was persuaded by influential friends of himself and Lincoln to reconsider his determination. Chief among these friends was Honorable John Braw, the sturdy war governor of Ohio. Later in the summer of 1864, the relations between the President and Secretary Chase again became inharmonious. The latter determined a second time to resign, and communicated that fact in a confidential letter to Governor Brah. Honorable William Henry Smith, at that time Ohio's Secretary of State, and intimately acquainted with the circumstances as they occurred, says, Mr. Brah went directly to Washington to bring about another reconciliation. After talking the matter over with Mr. Chase and Mr. Stanton, he called on the President and urged a settlement that would retain the services of Mr. Chase in the Treasury Department. Mr. Lincoln was very kind, and admitted the force of all that was urged, but finally said, with a quiet but impressive firmness, "'Brah, I think you had better give up the job this time.' And thereupon he gave reasons why it was unwise for Mr. Chase to continue longer in the Cabinet. In the autumn, the chief justiceship became vacant by the death of Judge R. B. Taney, October 11, 1864, and the friends of Mr. Chase, who was then in retirement, desired his elevation to that honorable seat. Congressman Riddle, who was designated to present the matter to the President, says, After hearing what I had to say, Mr. Lincoln asked, Will this content Mr. Chase? It is said that those bitten of the presidency die of it, I replied. His smile showed he would not take that answer. I added, Mr. Chase is conscious of ability to serve the country as president. We should expect the greatest from him. He would not disappoint you were it in his reach, but I should be sorry to see a Chief Justice anxious to swap for it. I said then what I had already said to Mr. Chase, that I would rather be the Chief Justice than the President. I urged that the purity and elevation of Mr. Chase's character guaranteed the dignity of the station from all compromise, that momentous questions must arise involving recent exercises of power without precedence to guide the court, that the honor of the government would be safe in the hands of Mr. Chase. "'Would you pack the Supreme Court?' he asked, a little sharply. Would you have a judge with no preconceived notions of law? was my response. True, true, <laughs> was his laughing reply. How could I find any one fit for the place who has not some definite notions on all questions likely to arise? 
the proposed appointment of mr chase as chief justice was severely criticized by certain friends of lincoln who believed mr chase was personally hostile to the president and could not understand the latter's magnanimity in thus ignoring personal considerations when told of these criticisms lincoln said my friends all over the country are trying to put up the bars between me and governor chase i have a vast number of messages and letters from men who think they are my friends imploring and warning me not to appoint him now i know more about governor chase's hostility to me than any of these men can tell me but i am going to nominate him which he did and chase became chief justice in december eighteen sixty four the withdrawal of secretary chase from the cabinet was soon followed by that of postmaster general blair who was succeeded by ex-governor dennison of ohio blair received says mr wells in his diary a letter from the president which though friendly in tone informed him that the time had arrived when it seemed best that he should retire and requesting his resignation which was promptly given mr wells says that the president subsequently informed him that Mr. Chase had many friends who felt wounded that he should have left the cabinet, and left alone. The friends of Blair had been his assailants, and the President thought that if he also left the cabinet, Chase and his friends would be satisfied, and the administration would be relieved of irritating bickerings. The relations of Blair with Stanton also were such that it was difficult for the two to remain. A little later came the resignation of Attorney General Bates, which, says Mr. Wells, has initiated more intrigues. A host of candidates are thrust forward. Everts, Holt, Gushing, Whiting, and the Lord knows who are all candidates. This gives but a faint idea of the embarrassments and dissensions among Lincoln's friends and official advisers, and of the ceaseless efforts and infinite tact that were needed to maintain a decent degree of harmony among them. Early in December the President submitted to Congress his fourth annual message, a brief and business-like statement of the prospects and purposes of the government. Its first sentence is, The most remarkable feature in the military operations of the year is General Sherman's attempted march of three hundred miles directly through the insurgent region. Then follows a reference to the important movements that had occurred during the year to the effect of moulding society for durability in the Union. The document closes with the following explicit statement. In presenting the abandonment of armed resistance to the national authority, on the part of the insurgents, as the only indispensable condition to ending the war on the part of the government, I retract nothing heretofore said as to slavery. If the people should, by whatever mode or means make it an executive duty to re-enslave such persons, another, and not I, must be their instrument to perform it. In stating a simple condition of peace, I mean simply to say that the war will cease on the part of the government whenever it shall have ceased on the part of those who began it. New Year's Day, 1865, was marked by a memorable incident. Among the crowds gathered in the White House grounds stood groups of colored people, watching with eager eyes the tide of people flowing in at the open door to exchange salutations with the President. It was a privilege heretofore reserved for the white race. But now, as the line of visitors thinned, 
showing that the reception was nearly over, the boldest of the colored men drew near the door with faltering step. Some were in conventional attire, others in fantastic dress, and others again in laborer's garb. The novel procession moved into the vestibule and on into the room where the President was holding the Republican court. Timid and doubting, though determined, they ventured where their oppressed and downtrodden race had never appeared before, and with the keen, anxious, inquiring look on their dark faces, seemed like a herd of wild creatures from the woods, in a strange and dangerous place. The reception had been unusually well attended, and the President was nearly overcome with weariness. But when he saw the dusky faces of his unwanted visitors, he rallied from his fatigue, and gave them a hearty welcome. They were wild with joy, thronging about him. They pressed and kissed his hand, laughing and weeping at once, and exclaiming, "'God bless Massa Lincoln!' It was a scene not easy to forget, the thanks and adoration of a race paid to their deliverer. Ever since issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln had earnestly desired that the measure should be perfected by a constitutional amendment forever prohibiting slavery in the territory of the United States. He had discussed the matter fully with his friends in Congress, and repeatedly urged them to press it to an issue. Just before the Baltimore Convention, he urged Senator Morgan of New York, chairman of the National Republican Committee, to have the proposed amendment made the keynote of the speeches and the keynote of the platform. Congressman Rollins of Missouri relates that the President said to him, The passage of the amendment will clinch the whole matter. The subject was already definitely before Congress. In December 1863, joint resolutions for this great end had been introduced in the House by Hon. James M. Ashley of Ohio and in the Senate by Hon. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts and Hon. J. B. Henderson of Missouri. Senator Trumbull of the Judiciary Committee, to whom the Senate resolutions were referred, reported a substitute for the amendment, which in April 1864 passed the Senate by a vote of thirty-eight to six, but reaching the House, June fifteenth, it failed to get the necessary two-thirds vote, and was defeated. At the next session of Congress the resolutions were again presented to the House, and after a protracted debate were passed, January 13, 1865, by a vote of 119 to 56. Illinois was the first state to ratify the amendment, and others promptly followed. Lincoln was grateful and delighted. He remarked, This ends the job, adding, I feel proud that Illinois is a little ahead. Overtures having been made through General Grant for a meeting between the President and certain peace commissioners representing the belligerents, Lincoln, anxious that nothing should be left undone that might evidence his desire to bring the war to a close, consented to the interview. On the morning of February 2, 1865, he left Washington quite privately in order to accomplish his mission without awakening the gossip and criticism which publicity would excite. At Fortress Monroe he was joined by Secretary Seward, who seems to have been the only member of the Cabinet who knew of the President's intention to meet the Southern Commissioners. Lincoln took the full responsibility, as he often did when dealing with risky or unpopular measures. None of the Cabinet were advised of this move, and without exception I think it struck them unfavorably 
that the chief magistrate should have gone on such a mission, is the comment of Secretary Wells, although he adds, the discussion will be likely to tend to peace. The next morning, February 3rd, the President and Mr. Seward received the Southern Commissioners, Stevens, Hunter, and Campbell, on board the U.S. Steam Transport River Queen, in Hampton Roads. The conference, says Mr. Seward, was altogether informal. There was no attendance of secretaries, clerks, or other witnesses. Nothing was written or read. The conversation, although earnest and free, was calm and courteous and kind on both sides. The Richmond party approached the subject rather indirectly, and at no time did they either make categorical demands or tender formal stipulations or absolute refusals. Nevertheless, during the conference, which lasted four hours, the several points at issue between the government and the insurgents were distinctly raised and discussed, fully, intelligently, and in an amicable spirit. The meeting was fruitless. The commissioners asked, as a preliminary step, the recognition of Jefferson Davis as President of the Southern Confederacy. Lincoln declined, stating that the only ground on which he could rest the justice of the war, either with his own people or with foreign powers, was that it was not a war of conquest, for the states had never been separated from the Union. Consequently, he could not recognize another government inside of the one of which he alone was President nor admit the separate independence of states that were yet a part of the Union. That, said he, would be doing what you have so long asked Europe to do in vain, and be resigning the only thing the armies of the Union have been fighting for. Mr. Hunter, one of the commissioners, made a long reply to this, insisting that the recognition of Davis's power to make a treaty was the first and indispensable step to peace and referred to the correspondence between King Charles I and his Parliament as a trustworthy precedent of a constitutional ruler treating with rebels. Lincoln's face then wore that indescribable expression which generally preceded his hardest hits. As he remarked, "'Upon questions of history I must refer you to Mr. Seward, for he is posted in such things, and I don't pretend to be. My only distinct recollection of the matter is that Charles lost his head. Alexander H. Stevens, one of the commissioners at the meeting on board the River Queen, and the vice-president of the waning Confederacy, was a very small man physically, with a complexion so yellow as to suggest an ear of ripe corn. Lincoln gave the following humorous account of the meeting with him. Mr. Steffens had on an overcoat about three sizes too big for him, with an old-fashioned high collar. The cabin soon began to get pretty warm, and after a while he stood up and pulled off his big coat. He slipped it off just about as you would husk an ear of corn. I couldn't help thinking, as I looked first at the overcoat, and then at the man, well, that's the biggest shuck and the smallest nubbin I ever laid eyes on. So strongly were Lincoln's hopes fixed on finding some possible basis for a peaceful restoration of the Union, that a few days after his return from his meeting with the Southern Peace Commissioners, he presented to the Cabinet, February 5, 1865, a scheme for paying to the Southern States a partial compensation for the loss of their slaves, provided they would at once discontinue armed resistance to the Federal Government. It was, says Mr. Wells, who was present at the meeting referred to, 
as a proposition for paying the expenses of the war for two hundred days or four hundred millions of dollars to the rebellious states to be for the extinguishment of slavery the scheme did not meet with favor and was dropped but it showed adds mr wells the earnest desire of the president to conciliate and effect peace the evening of march third eighteen sixty five the president had remained with his cabinet at the capitol until a late hour finishing the business pertaining to the last acts of the old congress his face had the ineffaceable careworn look yet his manner was cheerful and he appeared to be occupied with the work of the moment to the exclusion of all thoughts of the future or of the great event of the morrow rain prevailed during the morning of inauguration day but before noon it had ceased falling the new senate convened for a special session was organized and andrew johnson was sworn in its presence into the office of vice-president shortly after twelve o'clock lincoln entered the chamber and joined the august procession which then moved to the eastern portico as lincoln stepped forward to take the oath of office a flood of sunlight suddenly burst from the clouds illuminating his face and form as he bowed to the acclamations of the people speaking of this incident next day he said did you notice that sunburst it made my heart jump cheers and shouts rent the air as the president prepared to speak his inaugural he raised his arm and the crowd hushed to catch his opening words he paused as though thronging memories impeded utterance then in a voice clear and strong but touched with pathos he read that eloquent and imperishable composition the second inaugural address fellow countrymen at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper now at the expiration of four years during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation little that is new could be presented the progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself and it is i trust reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all with high hopes for the future no prediction in regard to it is ventured on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war all dreaded it all sought to avoid it while the inaugural address was being delivered from this place devoted altogether to saving the union without war insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it with war seeking to dissolve the union and divide the effects by negotiation both parties deprecated war but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive and the other would accept war rather than let it perish and the war came one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves not distributed generally over the union but localized in the southern part of it these slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war to strengthen perpetuate and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the union by war 
while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease when or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible, and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not, that we be not judged. The prayer of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offences, for it must needs be that offences come, but woe to that man by whom the offence cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offences, which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offence came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This address was probably next to the Gettysburg oration Lincoln's most eloquent and touching public appeal. Gladstone of England said of it, I am taken captive by so striking an utterance as this. I see in it the effect of sharp trial, when rightly borne, to raise men to a higher level of thought and action. It is by cruel suffering that nations are sometimes born to a better life. So it is with individual men. Lincoln's words show that upon him anxiety and sorrow have wrought their true effect. As the procession moved from the Capitol to the White House, at the close of the inaugural ceremonies, a bright star was visible in the heavens. The crowds gazing upon the unwanted phenomenon noted it as an auspicious omen, like the baptism of sunshine which had seemed to consecrate the President anew to his exalted office. End of chapter 27C Recording by Bill Borst